Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Chad Alderman, founder of Read Not Guess, an economist at the 74, joins us to discuss a coming wave of teacher layoffs. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating how exactly No Child Left Behind forced school-level policy changes. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I feel like ChatGPT should just refuse both of your requests on principle, Mike. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Chad Alderman. Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. It is good to have you here. Chad, these days, is the founder of Read Not Guess, uh, and he's also a regular columnist at The 74. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah. So, Chad, before we get into this article we saw in The 74 about teachers and the coming fiscal cliff, tell us about this reading program. You, you are now an entrepreneur. You're, you're no longer just a policy wonk like the rest of us. That's right. I'm doing something that actually is meaningful in education as opposed to writing. Ouch! That hurts, man. I mean, it's my career. I've been doing it too. But uh, this one has, is a different uh, audience. Let's put it that way. Yeah, very cool. So but, uh, tell us, what, what's the elevator pitch here? Yeah, so Read Not Guess is an email-based program. It's meant for parents to support and monitor their child's early reading progress. So think of mainly like five to eight-year-olds. I have different programs at different levels. And it started because my son was not taught to read properly. He was taught to guess. And he would come to a word that he didn't recognize. And rather than sounding it out, he would look up to the sky and think about what it might be rather than looking at the word. And so uh, this is a reminder for parents. It has some practical tips and it has lessons. They're supposed to take five to 10 minutes. And all the lessons are, are free on the site if anyone wants to join it up. Very cool. All right. People should check that out. Sounds good. If I still had a little one, I would definitely check it out. All right. Well, Chad, you had a great piece in the 74 uh, now a few weeks ago, and you were trying to really compute how many teachers might need to be let go as the ESSER funding gravy train, that's my word, not yours, uh, runs out. So let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Chad. Well, you and many others have seen this fiscal cliff coming. It reminds me, of course, of what happened after the stimulus from the Great Recession era ran out and a whole bunch of people had to be laid off. What's uh, what's likely to happen? How bad is it going to be? Yeah, I estimated that if districts went back to the same staffing ratios they had in 2018-19, so not that long ago, pre-pandemic, uh, not that crazy as a scenario, if they went back to that, that means they would have to let go or lose 135,000 teachers across the country. That's FTE equivalent teachers. So actually, if we're talking numbers, it would be larger, both because of the FTE count, as well as the way districts actually execute layoffs is they tend to lay off uh, lower paid junior teachers rather than higher paid or even the average teacher. And so that would inflate the numbers even higher. And these are just teachers. They don't look at the numbers for other potential staff. But I was just trying to put them a sense of how big the coming fiscal cliff could or should be. 
many listeners have probably picked up like it's not necessarily foretold that every district will go back to their staffing ratio of pre-pandemic but it's a very plausible scenario for some situations when if state budgets can't support uh some of the spending that districts have committed to over the last couple of years all right so 136,000 now you know we got to put this in context here uh we have something like 3 million teachers right though in my head i feel like i always hear that we're looking for something like 200,000 new teachers every year not sure if that math all checks out maybe it's a little bit more than that but this is a big chunk right i mean this basically would say that a not insignificant number of teachers who have been hired in recent years would be let go now you know, that that sounds bad. And of course, it is going to lead to some significant hardship for individual teachers and for some schools. But but again, in context, you know, we've been worried about teacher shortages. There's been some concern that in some places, uh, place, you know, states and districts have been lowering the bar for what it takes to become a teacher to, in, or to address those shortages. I mean, isn't it possible that we've maybe hired some people in recent years who aren't that strong at teaching? And so this is an opportunity for us to let go of those weaker teachers. I mean, at least if we could, if we could uh, have a system where we identify the less effective teachers and those were the ones who we say, hey, well, you know, it's a great labor market out there. Why don't you go find something else to do with your life? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's some evidence that teachers who are hired during quote unquote, tighter labor markets during recession areas tend to be better, uh, partly because districts have more discretion, they can pick from more candidates. And I think the opposite is probably true. We don't have affirmative empirical evidence on this, but I think the opposite is probably true that when districts are ramping up hiring and everyone's competing against each other, they tend to go down their list a little bit further and hire people who are maybe a little less qualified, maybe a little less skilled at teaching in the classroom. And so the 136,000 number is a, a national number. I have some specific district numbers in the piece, or I've written some other pieces for the 74 if people want to look up where their district lies it's mainly uh, high poverty urban areas are some of the biggest places. They got the most ESSER money and they tended to reduce their staffing counts the most over the last couple of years. Right. And these are also places in many cases that have enrollment declines now, somewhat related to the COVID you know, uh, situation, people moving away, but also just because of the baby bust that, you know, came out of the Great Recession, right? And uh, and they just have fewer kids now. Uh, of course, the new uh, migrants from Venezuela and some of these other Central American countries may be changing that picture. Anyways, it's, it's complicated. Here's a question I guess I would have is if you think about a Chicago or Detroit or where, where some of these things are going to happen and going to hit hardest, you know, I wonder if you look at the pool of teachers who don't yet have tenure, I wonder if those districts have the ability to pick and choose among them and, and keep the highest effective ones and let go of the least effective. Or or do you think their local, I don't even know if their local policies require them to literally do last in first out. Like, you know, you're a, you've got two years in, but you don't have tenure yet. Do you have more rights than the teacher that was just hired last spring? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, let's let's say that the worst case scenario really does play out and uh, districts have to make a lot of layoff decisions in a year or two from now. I think we're going to have a test of policies that were changed in the wake of the last recession where districts got more flexibility to uh, choose who they were going to let go. And so uh, more states, more districts now have 
more contextual factors rather than just last and first out. They're allowed to look at things like effectiveness or need if they're in a particular subject. And so there's those policies have been on the books for 10 years now, but they haven't really been tested. And so this could be the first test of how districts actually use some of that newfound discretion. Um, it's not everywhere. Uh, NCTQ has some great resources on how much this has expanded. But uh, again, those policies really have not been tested. And so I think this this could be one of the times when we actually start to see whether they're working. That's interesting. Now, look, I've written about it. It would be great if districts were willing to be aggressive here. And even before it came time for these reduction in force kind of policies, they could simply just remove ineffective, untenured teachers, right? And and I think that would be smart to do so. David, what 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 you think about all this? Well, I kind of have more questions than answers. I was going to pose a couple more to Chad here. My first question is, do you really think it's going to be a cliff or is it more of a slow slide? Because I always get a little confused when people talk about exactly when the money has been spent and and it never seems to be quite as clear cut as it sounds um, when you really dig into it. So, I mean, is there going to be a cliff or are we talking about two to three years in which stuff sort of gradually peters out? I like that. The fiscal slide. I think that that sounds like a line dance of some sort. I'm good at quitting things without actually knowing anything, Mike. Uh, I think that's a fair question. A fair push is like how severe will the cliff be? Will it be a, more like a slide or more like a cliff? I don't think we know the answer to that for sure. I think there are a couple things that have sort of softened it. One is uh, districts have built up rainy day funds or reserve funds, and so they can start to draw down those immediately. It also, there's a lot of contingencies on how state budgets hold up. And so if they stay strong, then that will make it so the districts don't have to make too many urgent decisions. And so it could look more like a slide. I will say, numerically speaking, Future Ed did analysis of how much money was left, and it's equivalent to about 8 or 10% of the average district's budget that they have for ESSER money this year that they won't have next year. And so it'll feel like an 8 to 10% cut across the board. Again, some districts have a steeper level. Some districts have already spent it, and so they won't feel that money slide off at all. And some of it's not on personnel. So it's on things like construction or HVAC or something. And so that money is just a one-time project and it won't feel like a layoff. They won't need layoffs for that. But there is quite a bit of excess staffing capacity that will have to slowly be worked off. And I think if you ask district leaders, some of them will say, well, we'll just let attrition handle it. And that might work for some things, but if the attrition is of the wrong type of staff, so if all your math and science or your STEM teachers leave, you still have to rehire them. At the same time, you can't afford as many people as you had before. And so the the ratios might change at the same time you have to rehire people. Well, that brings up another good point though, right? Which is we've been talking about this in, in general terms, but my assumption is that districts didn't just hire one math teacher and one science teacher and one ELA teacher. And so if we reverse the process, presumably we're talking about cutting certain types of teachers. Is that your sense? Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, we don't have the fine-grained data enough to say which teacher positions are most at risk, but I would say if they were creating other types of teacher aides or teacher coaches or sort of new positions would be the ones that I would say would be the most at risk um, if they don't have money to backstop them somewhere. All right. Well, we will have to leave it there. Uh, we will see, Chad. We'll have to come back at some point and see if it was a, a cliff or a slide and how to handle it. I mean, it, you know, I think 
I know speaking for myself, I assume that most are not going to handle it well, but I'd like to be proven wrong. You know, and and you're right. There are new policies in place that provide at least a little more flexibility around how people make these decisions. I do think it is somewhat easier when you're talking about a pool of teachers who haven't been there very long. I mean, they certainly don't have the same rights as the tenured uh, veteran teachers. And so, you know, maybe it'll be more manageable. I guess we'll see how that goes. Part of the story to be continued. So again, Chad Alderman, check out his program, Read Not Guess. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You know, Amber and David, I finally got around to playing around with ChatGPT uh, today. Have you played around with it yet? I have many times. Oh, okay. This was for a very important uh, uh, challenge. I asked it to plan a holiday party with the theme Christmas in Vegas, uh, (laughs) including a a menu and party games. It it was pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. Wow. What'd you get? Oh, you know, I mean, nothing super uh, original, you know, but, you know, a a buffet of a mix of Vegas type foods with Christmas foods (laughs) and, uh, you know, some classic uh, cocktails. And, uh, you know, of course, the main thing is I want to figure out how to like make a homemade roulette wheel or something like that. Ah, okay. I feel like Scott GPT should just refuse both of your requests on principle, Mike. <laughs> See, that's what you guys do when I send you emails and you right. find various ways to deflect and defer. Uh, <laughs> Until you say, hey, I'm going to put this on the top of your inbox again. Uh-huh, like, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm just going to go to Chat GPT from now on. Great plan, actually. All right, Amber, what, what you got for us? All right, we're going to go back to the NCLB days. I know we've all been wanting to do that. Uh, And look at accountability again. Stefan Lavertu, good uh, Fordham friend, and I think he's an associate uh, of our Ohio office on the research side. And John Gregg are looking at the impact of failing to make AYP on iniquities within Ohio districts based on kids who are economically disadvantaged. I think the goal here is trying to get in the black box and figure out, you know, maybe what, why NCLB was positive. We saw some good effects and nobody really knows why. Um, At least I think that's the purpose here. But um, let me get into it. They use a regression discontinuity design. They're comparing the outcomes of districts that just failed to make AYP in 2004 to those that just made it. So, again, we're looking at these. Uh, Right on each side of this cutoff, 2000, it's just a couple percentage points of the threshold. So 2004 is the first year in which districts were at risk due to 2003 AYP failure. They had to implement an improvement plan of their own design if they failed again in 2005. I mean, we should remember this history. Actually, in Ohio, they jumped the proficiency rate target way up, like over 10 percentage points. So the districts were kind of really feeling feeling the squeeze, so to speak. Um, if they were under district improvement, they had to get corrective action from the state after two years of not improving. So what they say is, look, we're going to try to tease out the effects of a significant difference in accountability pressure uh, on the decision-making of otherwise similar districts. Uh, they're looking at five outcome, five years prior to the unveiling of this designation and five years after. The findings, they document significantly higher probability 
of consecutive failure once districts are initially identified as failing to make AYP. So during the two years of 04, 05, and 05, 06, districts that failed to make AYP experienced a decline in the number of economically disadvantaged students and a corresponding increase in proficiency rates, particularly among economically disadvantaged students. Specifically, they found that over 100 disadvantaged kids disappeared from the average district in the fall of 2004-05, which was immediately after the negative rating was released in the summer of 2004, which they then are able to link to an increase in dropouts. This immediate decline in official district enrollment persists to the end of their panel. Then they find another approximately 100 uh, disadvantaged kids may have been reclassified as non-disadvantaged during 05-06 as there's a drop in the number of disadvantaged kids in excess of the drop in total district enrollment, which then coincided with the improvement in district proficiency rates. Then they say, okay, well, this dynamic suggests uh, the district at risk of intervention may have manipulated their enrollments, say it ain't so, of low-income students to avoid that intervention consistent with gaming behavior documented in other studies. The authors suggest that the apparent reduction in the classification of students as economically disadvantaged is consistent with districts tightening up their processes for determining which kids qualify for FRL. Uh, and then they start looking into this, you know, sudden and lasting enrollment decline driven by these economically disadvantaged kids who appear to have dropped out. Uh, and they say, well, if they somehow fell off the radar, then districts didn't work very hard to reclaim them in their official October counts, uh, even though they were going to lose some per pupil funding. And then they start again poking around the black box. They find no evidence the district spent more in economically disadvantaged student schools after failing AYP. But even though they didn't see the, the money coming in, they did find that districts that failed to make AYP increased teacher pay through collective bargaining. And they subsequently replaced teachers in economically disadvantaged schools at greater rates compared to districts that made AYP. Don't know if those teachers were higher quality. There wasn't discussion on that. Um, but anyway, the, the authors say, hey, you know, these all these things suggest that they're trying to reduce the risk of state consequences. And they close by saying, you know, we know NCLB raised achievement. We've seen the studies by Tom D., Jacob, and others. Um, but this study at least says in Ohio, there weren't big changes made in district governance, potentially maybe because of some gaming. So we can rule that out at least as a mechanism for improvement. That's what I've got. Woo. Clear as could be. Boy, <laughs> I have a, That's a what happens very... when you try to get in the black box, Mike. No, I look, and, and I think this is really important. I mean, th this is an issue. Look, I, as you guys know, I've been working on this long piece for the Hoover Institution that's going to come out soon about standards-based reform, and it gave me an excuse to dig back into the, the history and some of the research. A lot of the great research that Dan Goldhaber and, and his colleague uh, had summarized recently. And yeah, I mean, it, that that's the thing. We see this big increase in achievement in math, uh, and it's very hard to say why. You know, did, did we improve math instruction? Maybe, you know, did, did people start paying more attention to the lowest achieving kids and that they'd been ignoring before? Maybe, you know, was it because a bunch of bad schools closed? I don't know, maybe. So this is interesting. So they're saying, well, you know, maybe this other stuff that they're looking at, but 
you know, even with the gaming, I mean, that, you know, we're, we're, the studies rely on things like NAEP, which are, are not part of the gamings, we would think, in most cases. We're talking about fourth and eighth grade scores, so that's not the graduation thing. Right. So I think we still don't know. I mean, what happened, at least in these schools, that might have improved achievement? I think there can be such a thing as too much accountability. I said it out loud, (laughs) but I think I think it is good to have sane accountability that people can realistically, you know, escape from by doing things that are possible in the real world. Right. I think if you ask people to do the impossible, then they may do something that is impossible, like make 100 students disappear, right? Or it sounds like it's subtler than that. From if, if I was getting it right, it sounds like, you know, maybe they just don't try quite so hard to find the, the sort of marginal kids and make sure they're there for testing day, right? Right. Although, yeah, the being able to, able to link to increase in dropouts is a, is a little suspicious. Although again, the high school, you know, there wasn't much high school accountability, but, but look, David's right. I mean, you know, this was the days when it was all about proficiency rates. Uh, it was achievement. It was, there was, you know, there was the safe Harbor thing that kind of got at growth, but not really. Uh, and yeah, if all of a sudden we're talking about a year when uh, you had to hit these very high targets, if you're a high poverty school, yeah, they freak out and they panic and they, find ways to game it. It it is interesting. I mean, this notion of saying, okay, in some of these schools, their overall test scores were okay, but the scores for the disadvantaged group were not okay. Um, You just move some of those kids from disadvantaged into the general pool and that fixes the problem. Slick. It's slick. I'm telling you, it's uh, all these things that we don't realize go on. I was trying to to, to decide how much of the thing, you know, how many of the things that were being described would not apply to a school that was being rated based on growth, right? And I think as long as it's carefully constructed, I think most of them would not work, right? Assuming that you're basing, you know, it on all students' growth, right? You, you can't move kids from one category to the other, right? The Certainly the incentive to just get rid of low, you know, kids. Right, especially when you got a performance index. That's right. I mean, it, and if and if you're basing it on, you know, if, you, if you're controlling for the, the kids' baseline achievement, then certainly the incentive to just exclude low-performing kids is drastically reduced. I don't know if it's possible to design an accountability system that doesn't create some incentive to throw the tough kids overboard. But I think it's, if you're tracking kids at the student level, right, like that that ought to be one of the things that that you are tracking, right? And I think we have, you know, I think most states have something to that effect, right? But, you know, it's good to be reminded that <laughs> in the real world, this is what happens, right? That's why we are still trying to figure out accountability 2.0. Yes, that is good. Well, hey, this is great. And I, I hope people keep looking inside this black box because we still it's a mystery. I'd like to know how the heck we improved math achievement. I hope it, it, it was, I mean, something was real. Something good happened. I think we do know that. I think we are confident in that. Um of course, it could have been all about stuff outside of school is a possibility. But, you know, we think it seems to be related to accountability policies. That's what the studies say. So uh, keep, keep at it, people. Keep at it. <laughs> all right. Hey, that is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.